on this week's Gulhani on Politics. Alarming. Scotland's record high hospital waiting times. Wanting. Station platforms that lack step-free access. And grieving. The monarch's death and reflections on our own bereavements. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Gulhani on Politics. I'm Dr. Sandish Gulhani. Queen Elizabeth was laid to rest on Monday, September the 19th. Her state funeral was emotional and respectful. A moment in history that was reportedly watched by 4 billion people worldwide. The following day, the official period of mourning over, business resumed as normal in the Scottish Parliament, beginning with the swearing-in of new Scottish Conservative MSP Ros McCall, the first Scottish politician to take an oath of allegiance to King Charles III. I invite Ros McCall to take the oath. I, Rosalind McCall, I, Rosalind McCall, do swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance, do swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to His Majesty King Charles, his heirs and successors according to law, to His Majesty King Charles, his heirs and successors according to law, so help me God. So help me God. Before the cut and thrust of politics commenced, members were given the opportunity to pay tribute to the Queen and Royal Family. Noted by their absence from the Chamber, though, were the seven Scottish Green MSPs who want to abolish the monarchy, the very same Green Party that's in government with Nicola Sturgeon's Scottish National Party, the SNP. The SNP have been in government in Scotland for the past 15 years, which means they've been responsible for a broad range of policies, including health, transport, education, housing and taxation, like income tax and taxes when people buy homes or land. The SNP is big on announcements, but sadly very poor on delivery. And on health, it is really failing badly. Take workforce planning. There are more than 6,000 nursing vacancies in Scotland's NHS. 6,000! And we heard last week that the government has failed to fill over 1,000 places on this year's nursing and midwifery college courses. The First Minister herself has form in this area. When she was Health Secretary from 2007 to 2012, she slashed the number of student nurses by a fifth, despite warnings from the Royal College of Nursing that this would lead to staff shortages. The SNP Green Partnership blames Britain's exit from the EU on shortages of workers in our NHS and healthcare services. But is this credible? According to Stirling University's Professor David Bell, an expert in health economics who gave evidence to the Parliamentary Health Committee on September the 20th, the claim that Brexit has caused shortages of nurses is wrong. Although um, it was uh, perhaps an intention of those who supported Brexit that um, uh, overall levels of migration to the UK would reduce, that is not in fact the case. Uh, net migration to the UK, a huge proportion of which is going into both health and social care, has pretty much stayed the same. It's just that the location of where people are coming from uh, has changed. So that, uh, for example, whereas we might have had lots of people from Eastern Europe coming pre-Brexit, now it's India, Nigeria uh, and, and other countries. Now, so. That's just the way things have now panned out. The minister responsible for health and Scotland's NHS is the SNP's Humza Yusuf. His and his predecessor's shambolic management has left Scotland with too few nurses 
and the nurses we have feel overworked and under-rewarded. It doesn't take a genius to understand that staff shortages mean less patients being seen each day. And so patients, many in pain, have to wait longer and longer for treatment or operations. Let's take a look at accident and emergency waiting times. Patients reach out to A&E when they need urgent attention. But the latest stats show that just 63.5% of people were seen within four hours last week. That's a record low. Week after week, thousands of people are waiting far too long, resulting in excess harm and suffering. Despite the scale of this crisis, Humza Yusuf has barely lifted a finger, allowing this shameful situation to persist for months on end. In Parliament, Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross hammered this home at Thursday's First Minister questions. This week's health figures revealed that more people are waiting longer than ever for emergency treatment. Across Scotland over the last week, nearly 10,000 people waited more than the target four hours at accident and emergency departments. That's the worst waiting times on record, and it's only September. Our doctors, our nurses and staff are doing outstanding work, but we know the pressures on our NHS only get worse over the winter. So, First Minister, what action is your government taking now to reduce the time that people are waiting for emergency treatment here in Scotland? First Minister. The First Minister accepts that the situation is not good enough. Then, well, she characteristically went on to deflect and blame. She said that pressure on the NHS was on others as if this has nothing to do with her or her hapless health secretary. Her excuses included changing demographics, Brexit, and in some perverse self-congratulatory way, tried to take credit for Scotland performing better than elsewhere in Britain, at least over the last month. Douglas Ross was having none of this. The deputy chair of BME Scotland said this week, as an A&E doctor, I often tell people that A&E is a safe space you can come here if you're in pain, if you're sore, if you don't know where to go. But Dr Peel continued, our A&E departments are no longer safe. And what's really concerning is our government just aren't acting and they're turning a blind eye to this. A new information that we've uncovered shows just how horrendous waiting times are in Scottish hospitals just now. An FOI response has revealed that one patient at a hospital in Ayrshire had to wait 84 hours for treatment. That's three and a half days. The equivalent of turning up for emergency treatment right now and not being seen until next week in the early hours of Monday morning. First Minister, is that really what anyone in Scotland should go through in 2022? People are actually dying unnecessarily because they are waiting far too long to be seen. This is not the fault of doctors or nurses. The responsibility rests with the Scottish Government. But this SNP Green Government and its Health Secretary, Humza Yusuf, refused to accept responsibility. The SNP's main priority is independence, breaking away from the United Kingdom. This is also the goal of its partner in government, the Scottish Greens, who also want to establish a republic. Health is clearly not their priority and it's tragic, but no wonder that life expectancy in Scotland is significantly lower than in the rest of the UK. Two years lower on average and five years lower for men living in Glasgow. The stats also show that life expectancy for men living in Scotland's poorest areas 
is nearly 14 years less than those in wealthy areas. I recently had the pleasure to participate at a health and social care festival hosted by Holyrood Magazine and the British Heart Foundation. The focus of our public health discussions was on Scotland's persistently high obesity rate and worrying levels of alcohol and drug consumption. With Scottish Minister for Public Health, Marie Todd, agreeing with me that government responses are not moving fast enough. I wanted to explore how government could be doing things better. As event staff cleared up after the coffee break, I caught up with Catherine Smith, Professor of Public Health Policy at the University of Strathclyde. It's interesting to reflect whether the Minister meant we're not moving forward fast enough in terms of the kind of outcomes and the progress that we'd like to see, or we're not moving forward fast enough in terms of actually getting policies in place that will make a difference. I suspect it's both. When I look at the Scottish Government policy-making system, it's, it's big, even though it's a small country, it's big and it's organised into silos. There's lots of different competing interests going on there. Um, and I think it's quite hard to get agreement on moving forward a particular policy. And then when you take into consideration all of the consultation, lobbying, interests that are involved in that, it, it can be a very slow process. So I think because of that, you have to be really careful in making the decisions around what you're going to prioritise. So you have to feel really confident that the, the policy that you're going to prioritise and you're going to start with is the one that's going to make the most difference. And at the moment, I think the Scottish Government could do a better job of thinking about that prioritisation because what I see happen is still too much silo-based thinking. People are thinking of priorities in terms of their specific areas, not just of the outcomes they're responsible for, but the levers that they can pull. And really, we need a more systems approach. So we need to be thinking about how the whole system interacts and then if what policy is going to make the, like, the, give you the best return on investment, really. For, for that investment, the amount of effort and the resources that are going into it, what's going to make the most difference? And that really needs a systems-based approach. I'm working on a project called Cycle with the Scottish Government that's trying to take that systems-based approach. But I have to say, like, it's hard when you've got a system that's divided up that way. And, and so you talk about priorities. What would be yours? Uh, my priorities would be um, wealth distribution, housing, um, availability of products that we know are damaging the health of the Scottish population. And across all of those three, it would be making sure that you're bringing the public with you. So what I personally felt was a great health policy that worked is the smoking ban mm -hmm. on indoors. And that, that's an example of how we can be successful. Yeah. Um, what, it, are, are you happy with that policy? Would you like to see that policy now extended? Uh, and is there anything else that you would want to really get as the, the very next thing you do? I, I suppose I'd say if you look at public health kind of as a whole and all of the different areas of public health, tobacco is the one where we've had the most success. But for me, it's not just about the one policy, the, the ban on smoking in public places and, and in indoor spaces. That was a really important policy. And Scotland took leadership there. So it was also really important for a kind of sense of Scotland as a public health leader. But that was one of many policies that have been put in place to tackle tobacco issue. And I think the reason that I'd say it's been successful is because there's been continuous policies and continuous movement on tobacco and because there's been public conversation and bring the public with you. And I think part of the reason that that's all been possible is, I'd say two things. So one is there's been an eye to the economics of it. There has been this joining up. The people that have been um, promoting public health orientated policies have also been thinking about the economic consequences of that and how it's going to play out. So 
that made a real difference because until that happened, what you had was the industry making arguments on an economic case and public health people making arguments on a health case and they just didn't meet up. So that kind of thinking about what the economic impacts of public health policy is really important. Um, and then the other thing is this strong um, advocacy community in public health. So you had lots of good conversations between politicians, civil servants, researchers, advocates. You have health professionals. You have people coming together on tobacco. Um, and I, I think I, when I moved from working on health inequalities um, 10 years ago to working in tobacco for a bit, I really saw a difference between what felt like a quite fragmented community with lots of different ideas, no strong advocacy leadership. In tobacco, we have that. And I feel that's what we need in other areas, public health too. It's quite interesting you spoke about you speaking about health inequalities because uh, actually in health committees yeah. we spoke about how there is no overarching strategy to try to deal with health inequalities. Uh, is that, I, I take it that's something that you're feeling, and and how can we try to implement that? Yeah. So so a lot of my research has been on policy responses to health inequalities and how different policies impact on health inequalities, and I suppose I'd say. At, there's been strategies that have been put in place at, at different points in time, and sometimes they've made a difference, and sometimes they haven't. I'm not, I suppose I'm not overly concerned by the lack of um, a strategy, simply because I've seen strategies that sound very nice in the past, and they haven't made that much of a difference. It's really tricky because there's multiple policies going on at the same time, right? and, and many of them will have an impact on health inequalities, and it's quite difficult to unpack exactly what's happened at different points in time. But in terms of the money in, there has been money in in certain areas, but there, but there hasn't been enough investment in other areas, I'd say. Housing's a really key one in Scotland. We've got poor quality housing. Yeah. We have had for a long time. We haven't really done enough about that. And, the, and we also have far too many people and far too many children living in poverty. Like, that shouldn't be the case. So, so there needs to be investment in trying to tackle that wealth inequality in housing. I've not seen substantial investment going into those areas. Investment and choices. This applies to all political decisions, including health, housing, education and transport. In the south of Glasgow, the Cathcart District Railway has served communities since 1886. It's very popular locally with city centre commuters and shoppers alike. However, as much of the track runs above nearby roads, it's difficult for many people to access the platform and use this quick and convenient suburban service. My name is Reese McLean and I just stay in Cathcart. I think, look, for me personally, I'm fairly young and healthy. It doesn't cause a significant issue in my everyday use of the station, but I do see a lot of parents with young children, elderly people having a huge amount of trouble getting up and down the stairs safely. There are a lot of slips. You see people with buggies trying to bring a toddler as well, and it is very dangerous to access the station for them. And obviously, I mean, no one disabled can ever use the station. Since 2006, the UK government has invested 553 million to improve access to Britain's railways, with work completed on 150 stations and a further 68 projects are at various stages of construction of development. Here in Scotland, Scottish government ministers work with Transport Scotland and ScotRail to identify priority projects. However, few stations in Glasgow have yet to benefit from the fund, which is something I want to address. This is Rosie, a mum from Cathcart, here struggling with her toddler and pushchair. So for us, debt-free access would be like life-changing. 
especially if we have another one. There's no way I could get two babies up this those stairs there anyways. And I think Mount Florida is the only one in the south side that has step-free access. And um, I know! And so sometimes we have to get off there, like if we've got shopping or whatever, and then walk the last bit. And the bus is twice as expensive as the train. So yeah, for us it would be life-changing. You can see here the steps are quite steep. There's no other access to get in. Uh, and I was talking to a couple just earlier. There was uh, a young couple, but they had a big bag and they had a bicycle. And the lady I was speaking to said it would be impossible for her to make it up these steps to do it if it wasn't for the fact that her partner was able to help her. Now, that's not a situation we want for a young couple, let alone for other people who are going to struggle with their mobility for any reason. So we are looking to get UK government money in so that we're able to upgrade this facility, create step-free access and help the community. Help in the community comes in many forms, including from government, local councils and the third sector. And we should never lose sight of the important role that charities play in the social and political fabric of our country. One organisation that provides tremendous support is Cruise Scotland, the bereavement charity, which provides free counselling to help people understand, process and navigate their grief when loved ones die. I spoke with Nicola Reid, head of Cruise Scotland Client Services, about the death of our Queen, which has triggered deep underlying feelings of grief among many who have lost loved ones over these recent difficult years. People have been very busy over the last the last week or so. They've been watching the funeral, they've been watching things play out, and other people have been avoiding it. They've been stepping away from it and they've had too much of the coverage. So parts of our service have seen increased activity, particularly the web chat service that we offer, which is a text-based support system. Um, they have seen an increase in traffic. We, we've not seen a huge number of increase in our calls into our helpline. But we have had where there have been appointments set up and things like that. There's been quite a lot of cancellations and rearrangements of that for different reasons. People wanting to spend time watching the funeral, watching what's what's happening, but also actually it's been too difficult alongside what they're seeing playing out on the screen. Um, so a real mixture of that. My senses will see will see a lot more as time goes on because the Queen's funeral was very public. It was a very public morning. And and what our clients have experienced might have been very different to that. You know, we've come out of a two-year pandemic where even the ability to go to a funeral was seriously restricted. We'll, we have families where they had to select six people or 20 people to attend the funeral. And here they are watching millions of people watching a funeral and thousands upon thousands of people out lining streets and you know a public lying in state and all of that when they didn't get to do that they didn't get to do that for their granny for their mother um they didn't get to to be at the bedside all of those things so i think the the, the pain comes afterwards as they absorb what they've been witnessing in this week and comparing and contrasting with what their experience had been and and then their own you know if, if they're carrying their own grief for the queen bits of that will come in and, and muddy the waters of that when should people who have lost a loved one be calling an organization like cruise scotland to seek support grief is normal and we're always looking for movement in grief there's always a 
a set, I, I like to describe it almost as a bit of a, a train journey that grief will have a forward momentum. It will shift and it will change and it will go through different um, train stations, if you like, as, as you move forward from the time of death into the future. And we expect to have pauses at those train stops. We expect that, that some things will be more difficult than they normally were and we'll, we'll stop at those. But we, we should have the ability and capacity and time to move forward. Sometimes grief and bereavement can feel like a complete derailment where we've come off the tracks. We don't know how to, to function and do the normal things of life. And as, as time goes on, we remain unable to, to function and do the normal things of life. So it's about that. What feels like there's still movement? And it might be forwards and backwards. There might be a little train shuffling backwards and forwards. But but there should, you know, for healthy grief, for normal grief, if we want to call it that, but for grief to be healthy, there should be movement in it. And if we're feeling very stuck in, in individual aspects of that, then maybe we need to think, actually, it might be good to have a conversation with somebody around that as to, is, is this okay? Is this normal? Is this, why am I feeling like this? What's brought that kind of stuckness in that? Um, and, you know, that, that might happen with friends and family around and about us, our existing support networks, or it might be that we need to lift the phone to the likes of our helpline and just talk that through with somebody who's that little bit distance from the family and friendships and, and can have those honest conversations with us and give us that kind of airtime to talk through. Why, why does this feel uncomfortable? Why does it feel that there's not a movement in that? From your experience, is talking through grief with family members the best way to cope with loss? The challenge can be where if a group of people are grieving the same person, so say it's it's a father that has died in the household and the the wife will carry a, a grief for that. There may be children in that that circle. There may be siblings and aunts and uncles, and th they all carry that different, unique grief. And sometimes that can be a little bit like sandpaper that might rub up against their their grief and can feel uncomfortable. So sometimes it's good to take that little bit of distance and speak to somebody else. But sometimes it's okay. How can we communicate well and and keep oil in that relationship so it's lubricated conversations rather than than abrasive conversations but grief is messy and it's difficult and and tensions are heightened people can be angry people can be experiencing all kinds of emotions that are not not the normal in that relationship and as family members we can react to that and you know why, why are they being like that and, and I'm I'm hurt and offended by how they're behaving so there can be friction that comes in so um, so we're trying to keep oil in the relationships that, that are there and keeping good, healthy, open communication of maybe understanding the emotions of grief that it is difficult. These things are hard. And sometimes just that step back to, to somebody that, that, that brings that little bit of distance that can help understand the, the abrasiveness that might be going on because they're all grieving in the same space. So that's why we need times with family and friends and times of connections to do that storytelling, to do that sharing, to do that talking, but also perhaps times away of actually I need to say stuff out loud to somebody else who's not um, as close to it. We need both. We need both. We need to be in community and we need our individual space as well. How long is it usual for people to stay in the grieving process before we should start getting worried about them? I would say how long is a piece of string? Um, Grief really has no timeline. There'll be some natural things. Do that. The first weeks and months of grief can be very difficult because there's a lot of business to do in that. You know, we might be 
helping sort out people's affairs. We might be clearing houses. We might be selling houses. We might be just even the practicalities of arranging a funeral and when that can happen. So there's there's a lot of activity that happens in those early days and people sometimes just don't have the space to actually, how am I and and how am I coping with this? Because I'm busy. I'm busy doing all the, the activity that comes with it. Uh, but as time goes on, as the, I guess, as things that get navigated in a normal year, birthdays, anniversaries, Christmases, the, 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 the pinpoints that have happened throughout the year, some of those, we need to learn who we are in those new spaces. We need to learn who we are going out to family weddings, other family funerals. So there needs to be some activity that happens in there that we test the water in to see who is this new me in that space. That's been very difficult over lockdown as well because we didn't have that. We didn't have the birthday parties and the, the celebrations and the weddings to go to to, to say, oh, how, how, how does this strange new clothes of being alone feel when I'm in that space? Um, so <laughs> there, there's bits of that that we have to navigate. Um, medics like yourself might be looking at a kind of a, a, a six month kind of thing of, okay, what, what what's happened? What's adjusted? What's changed? Um, and what's not? And, and how is that? Why is that? And how is that? And it might be perfectly healthy for one person. It might, it might present differently for another. So I'm afraid I can't give you a timeline because there is no timeline. We can see people coming to us in cruise Scotland for years down the line because something has happened that has triggered um, a memory, you know, if I think of the Queen and somebody watching the, the Queen's funeral, it might bring up memories of their grandmother who died a long time ago. It might bring up memories of of a child that died who loved Paddington Bear and the last saw the Queen speaking to Paddington Bear at, at the Jubilee celebrations and, and seeing her little grand or great granddaughter respond with awe and wonder to that. And, you know, so it's, it's it, there can be trigger things that open things up years and years down the line. And that's not to say that the grief's not healthy and is not okay. It's just that something has triggered it. Um, so, so yeah, there's there's no timeline. Very unique to each person. Um, but but we, it, it's about is there movement? Is there, and how easily do we move out of being able to spend time with that loss and into the the normal activities of life that um, that we we need to often get on with. So yeah, that, that's a very non-answer for you. That was Nicola Reid of Cruise Scotland. If you, a friend or family member, needs to find out more about this amazing charity, you can free phone 0808 802 6161. That's 0808 802 6161. Or visit their website, cruisescotland.org.uk, where you'll find lots of information and a chat line. Well, that's been a bumper episode this week of Gulhani on Politics. We have a big week ahead with all eyes on Nicola Sturgeon to see if her SNP Green government will give workers in Scotland a tax cut. As it stands, Scotland is now the highest tax country in the United Kingdom, with nurses and police officers in Scotland paying around one week's wages more in tax each year compared to colleagues down south. Thank you for listening. Please don't forget to follow this podcast and check me out on social media. 